The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Emma Ackerman, personal finance reporter at Market Watch. Today with me is Michelle Dickerson, law professor at the University of Texas at Austin School of Law, as well as the Arthur L. Moeller Chair in Bankruptcy Law and Practice. Hi, Professor Dickerson. Welcome, and thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Of course. So it's been nearly 55 years since the enactment of the Fair Housing Act, which made housing discrimination illegal formally in the U.S. Ostensibly, this ended practices like redlining, which deprived black homeowners of mortgages in certain neighborhoods, as well as appraisal discrimination in different mortgage conditions based on a person's race. Yet, according to the Urban Institute, the gap in homeownership rates between white families and black families is actually the widest it's ever been. And yes, that's wider than it was before the Fair Housing Act was signed. In 1960, the homeownership rate for Black people was 38% and 65% for white people. As of 2022's fourth quarter, according to data from the St. Louis Fed, the homeownership rate for non-Hispanic white people was 74.5% and 44.9% for Black people. At least for middle-class families, homeownership is often considered a key component of wealth building, if not the American dream itself. So far, it's also an opportunity that's largely benefited white people. Professor Dickerson, how did we get to this point in American history? Right. So, you know, this being um, the month of February, it is appropriate that we look at the history to understand the present. And so I'm going to pull out a couple of things that you mentioned Um, there. It is hard now for lots of people to be able to buy homes. In fact, one of the criticisms I often get when I talk about the racial homeownership gap is, well, I'm white. It's hard for me to buy a home, too. The difference I always raise is in the 1930s and 40s, after the Depression and World War II, the federal government engaged in concerted efforts to increase the homeownership rates. But it was only if you were white. And in fact, they made it virtually impossible for blacks to be able to buy low-cost homes using the same mortgage products that they developed and made available for white homeowners at the time. So you mentioned the phrase redlining, and I think most people probably understand what redlining is, but let me sort of give a quick quick definition. The federal government um, had a complicated uh, rating system that it used to decide whether or not it would guarantee loans. So you have, you know, people think of the 15, 30 year fixed interest rate loan. Well, those didn't exist before the depression. So the federal government created them, but they would only insure loans that were in neighborhoods that were viewed as being safe and stable. All Black, or I should just say non-white neighborhoods were deemed to be unsafe. Because they were deemed to be unsafe, if you're a Black person and you wanted to buy a home in that neighborhood, you had to pay more and you weren't going to get a low-cost loan. So the response could be, well, you know, Black people could just live someplace else. Not the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, because um, 
until the Supreme Court ruled them unconstitutional, unconstitutional some uh, cities had zoning ordinances that said Blacks can't live in certain neighborhoods. Likewise, private homeowners agreed with each other, we won't sell our home or lease our home or rent our home to someone that's not white. So if you're a Black person in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, you can't buy a home using a low-cost loan in a Black neighborhood, and you probably can't move into a white neighborhood either. Fast forward now um, several decades, and you understand why we are where we are with respect to the racial homeownership gap. So if your parents or your grandparents were able to buy a low cost, uh, to buy a home at low cost in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, well, by now they've probably either, you know, bought a new home or they've sold that home. Maybe they died. But all of that means you have wealth. You have access to family wealth. So if you want to buy a home, your parents can loan you the money. If you want to live in a home, you maybe can live in your parents' home. So the racial homeownership gap now is so large because of things that worked well for whites decades ago, but didn't work at all if you weren't white. Right. Homeownership begets homeownership, wealth begets wealth. Thank exactly. you so much. I mean, in 2019, or actually, sorry, 2018, research published by the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis noted that when it comes to middle-class wealth, we're primarily talking about homeownership, right? Not the kind of equity that rich folks might hold in stock. So consider this. The incomes of middle-class households from the 50th and 90th percentiles increased by less than 40% from 1971 to 2007, while the bottom 50% had stagnant income growth. At the same time, wealth for the bottom 50% doubled, the research found, and middle-class wealth increased at the same rate as those in the top 10%. And again, when we're talking wealth for those people, we are talking about housing equity. It's also worth noting that Black homeownership during that time actually hit a peak of about 49% in 2004. Um, we have never uh, crested 50%, as I understand, Professor Dickerson. So that, of course, was before the financial crisis hit and the home prices tanked and millions lost their homes to foreclosure. If so much of middle class wealth was tied up in housing at the time of the financial crisis, in what ways were homeowners impacted by that crisis with Black homeowners specifically being impacted? So um, a couple of points that you made. Most middle class families, middle income families, however you want to sort of think about them, their wealth is in their homes. They don't own a lot of stocks. Sometimes they may own a small business, but basically their homes constitute their wealth. When they lost their homes in the 2007-2009 Great Recession, they also lost their wealth. One of the reasons that Black homeownership rates were so high, for I'm, I'm sorry, Black foreclosure rates were so high is because to um, encourage Blacks to buy homes, uh, lenders came up with all of these really creative, some would say, I would say reckless mortgage products where you could buy a house, put no money down, uh, make interest only payments for the first few uh, months and sometimes the first year of the loan. So when the housing market crashed, Blacks who were homeowners, many of them lost everything. We lost generations of wealth because of the Great Recession, and we still haven't recovered that wealth. 
Thank you. And I'd like to remind folks, um, please send your questions in the Q&A. We've already gotten some really great questions in sign up. Um, one comes from Mia. They ask, how can the homeownership gap for foundational Black Americans, Black Americans whose lineage predates 1850, be closed with legislation? And what type of legislation would you suggest we amend? Um, do you have any comments on that, Professor Dickerson, about legislation either on the federal level, state level, or local level that could help? And so I think the, the Mia's question relates to reparations. It's a bill that has been introduced um, in the current uh, House for uh, several years. It hasn't passed. I am not optimistic, especially uh, given, I mean, I'm just going to be realistic, given the current political climate um, in, in D.C., I don't see a reparations bill passing at the federal level. There are some cities uh, that have... Uh, created their sort of local reparations bills. But one of the things that we have to keep in mind when we're talking about reparations is when people start running the numbers in terms of what is the homeownership, what would the homeownership gap um, be, or what would it take to close a homeownership gap for people who can trace their ancestors to enslaved Americans, it's billions and billions of dollars. So one of the things uh, that I'll mention is actually not reparations, but it, it deals with people who lived in a neighborhood that became gentrified. So your families lived there for 30, 40, 50 years. Suddenly they can't afford to live there or you can't afford to live there and you're, you're priced out because you can't even afford to pay the taxes on the home. Uh, one thing that some cities have tried, and I think it's a great start, is to say, when we start building homes in that area, we're going to build some of them to be affordable and we're going to have sort of a right of return. So the people that live there and were pushed out get sort of the right of first refusal to buy the affordable homes that are being built there. But I have to say, I'm just not optimistic that we're going to get a major reparations bill, uh, certainly not through the current Congress. Thank you for answering Amia's question. And Amia, thank you for uh, submitting that question. It is a very important one. I mean, talking about gentrification as you just were, one thing I'm curious about is wondering, what about the country's black homeowners who are looking to sell today and want to maintain their ownership? So much has been reported recently about bias in the appraisal system, which we sort of mentioned at the top of this call. And that's something that both the uh, industry itself and the Biden administration have said that they're looking to address. How do we protect the wealth of the existing black homeowners? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the problems that we're seeing now with uh, di discriminatory, um, or we could say in some instances, racist appraisals, it's almost as if we found another way to do redlining. And this is what I mean. Um, I will give an example of a Johns Hopkins professor who um, had his home appraised He's also married to a, a professor and they live in a predominantly white neighborhood. Uh, the appraisal, the appraisal uh, report came back in and the professor thought, mm, this seems a little bit low. And so the, prof the professor removed himself, his wife, his children, all black pictures and art from the house. And the numbers came back. The original appraiser was at four, appraisal was at 475,000. 
The new appraisal, when he had one of his white colleagues to be in the home when the appraiser came, was $750,000. That's an enormous amount of lost wealth. And there's no way that you can justify that as an accident. The house didn't change. The only thing that changed was who was physically in the home and the art that was being displayed or the pictures that were being displayed when the appraiser returned. Now, that's, I think, the most glaring example, but you, they're all over. You know, there's a current case that's, or I think it's in mediation in California, where the appraisal gap is half a million dollars. So we're looking at Blacks who are able to save up for a down payment, uh, qualify for a mortgage, buy a home, but their home doesn't appreciate. They're not building generational wealth. If an appraiser comes in and says, your home is worth less because you are Black. We see the largest appraisal gaps actually in predominantly uh, Black neighborhoods. So the examples that we often see um, for those of our listeners who may be in, in D.C. is the difference between a home appraised in Prince George's County and a home that's appraised in Montgomery County. Montgomery County is a predominantly uh, white um, uh, county in Maryland, and Prince George's is a predominantly Black county in Maryland. The numbers are striking in terms of same home, same square footage, you know, same amenities in the home, and yet the appraisals come back very differently depending on the race of the owner. And so the Biden administration created a task force, which is chaired by the current secretary of uh, HUD. And last year they released sort of the preliminary data. And I think it was like 45 million appraisal reports over the last decade. And what they found was a consistent and a systemic pattern of Black-owned homes, whether the Black lives in a Black neighborhood or the Black owner lives in a Black, uh, a white neighborhood, their homes are just valued less. So it's hard to say, well, all you have to do to build wealth as a, as, as a Black person is to buy a home when the appraisers seem to be working against you. Wow. And if we're talking about how, you know, homeownership begets homeownership and wealth begets wealth, as we were earlier in this call, like you said, even owning a home might not, you know, translate directly to intergenerational wealth, or at least on the same level as it might for a white family. Exactly. I mean, just talk about the other side of the coin for a moment. As of 2022, and this is according to the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard University, which keeps a lot of fantastic data for those listening and wanting to do their own research, we had about 44 million renters in this country. Mind you, that's while rents were increasing nationwide. They still are, albeit at a slower rate. It's contributing to inflation. I'm sure you've all read a lot about it and have reported on it. And right now we know that uh, about 58% of black households were renting, at least I think as of 2019, and with many of those households being low income. And what ways might rising rents be impacting those renters' abilities to achieve their financial goals? And at what point is it sort of no longer feasible for some of these households to even consider homeownership? But one of the things um, in terms of sort of my research and also my teaching that I've shifted in the last couple of decades is I used to focus only on home ownership. I wrote a book about home ownership and then I realized home ownership is really not where we need to be focusing on right now. It's affordable housing. So now when I talk, I usually say affordable housing, whether owned or rented, 
because in cities across the country, and I'm sure I don't need to stress this to any of the people that are listening, because you, many of you are probably living this on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and again, I mentioned earlier the challenges with gentrification. It's a huge problem in some cities, including my own, Austin, Texas. It's also a problem in Atlanta. It's a problem in D.C., cities that historically had large uh, non-white populations. So the problem that we are running into in these cities, as I mentioned earlier, are as they are gentrified, as you are having richer people return to the cities, what that means is if a rich person comes back and they buy a home that is currently being rented, well, the renter is going to have to leave because the person wants to occupy their own home. So the renter looks around and they say, well, I'll just rent someplace else in the neighborhood. Maybe it's because I grew up in the neighborhood. I have cultural ties to the neighborhood, or maybe it's close to where I work. Well, they look around and there's nothing there. There isn't any affordable housing that's left. And so lower and middle income families of all races, although many of the neighborhoods that are being gentrified in the cities that I just mentioned are predominantly Black and Latino, they're being pushed out of the areas that are now deemed to be more desirable, and they're getting farther and farther out of the city. Now, this has all sorts of implications. You're telling people, well, you grew up in this neighborhood, your family roots are in this neighborhood, you can no longer live here because you can't afford to live here either to buy a home or to even rent a home. And then the second thing is, you know, there's significant transportation challenges that we're also seeing in our large cities when you're forcing people farther and farther away from the cities. So they live outside of the city, but then they have to come back in, drive back in or whatever to the cities to actually work. So you're absolutely right. The problem now is not just that it's become hard for Blacks to buy homes. It's now becoming a challenge to even find affordable property to be able to rent. Thank you, Professor Dickerson. And we're getting some live questions in. Um, one comes from Hal. He wanted to know, do you have an idea of whether or not it was the same appraiser or the different appraiser in either of the examples that you mentioned providing those disparate values? In one of them, I think, well, both of them, they used the same company, I think. But mm -hmm. one of them, I think they had different appraisers. So that's a great point. Maybe the second person saw something that the first person didn't. The challenge is you may see a $50,000 difference. I'm not sure how you can see a half million dollar difference. So even if we say, well, it was two different people and maybe one of them had views that were but a half million dollars is hard to explain, even if they're two different appraisers with two different companies. And again, I haven't read all 48 million appraisal reports that the Biden administration gathered last year, but this is not sort of a one-off. They have found a consistent pattern. And I will also say that this has been replicated for decades, they've used uh, paired testing studies. So they'll have, you know, uh, a black couple and a white couple, same home, same appraisal, uh, same appraiser, and the numbers will come in and show the differences in the gap. So I'm, I'm not sure if in the two situations I gave, but I will say, generally speaking, it's hard to say that two appraisers would come in 
a half million dollars apart. Thank you. And he asked another question as well, uh, based on the appraisal uh, conversation we were having. He asks, since public education is financed by property taxes and the tax base is tied to property values, how do we address the wealth gap and corresponding education and upward mobility gap? This is something that's pretty much I hear talked about all the time in reference to these appraisal conversations, right? Yeah. And and so it's um, it's something that I think about a lot, uh, largely because I'm writing a book on the middle class. And one of the things I stress throughout the book is you can't talk about education unless you also talk about housing. So he raises a tremendous uh, point. When we're looking at how our schools are funded um, in states uh, and also how localities fund different schools, it's all about the property taxes. So if you have homes that have a low appraisal rate, uh, but more importantly, and I'll just say sort of generally, when we are saying that schools that are in neighborhoods that are low income, you're not going to get the same kind of services. You're not going to have as, um, I don't like to say the word good, but that's unfortunately the word that people use. You have good schools in high income neighborhoods and not as good schools in low income neighborhoods, because it's, but, but it's because of the way that we fund our public education first. And second, it's because of the way that we draw boundaries for schools. And I know what I'm about to say is an anathema, and it you know it makes uh, it makes parents furious. But there's nothing that says that your child has a right to go to the school in your neighborhood that is a public school, just because someone in the school district drew the district boundary line attendance zones and says that's where your child gets to go. Public funds are being used to pay for schools. Tax revenue is being used to pay for schools. And yet most, most localities base it on student street, their, their home address, rather than you live in a city and you should be able to attend any school in that city. Thank you. And Hal, I hope that answers your questions. Thank you for submitting them. One thing I'm curious about as well, uh, if homeownership is the goal, there is some good news that we got in the past few years. Black homeownership actually increased during the pandemic. Why do we think that is and how long do we expect it to last? So in answering your question, I want to keep things in perspective and tie two things that you've said together. So Black homeownership rates did indeed increase uh, between uh, 2019 and 2021. So that's great news, but they still aren't at 50%. Black homeownership rates have never been 50%. So they are better, but we're looking at better relative to what? As I mentioned earlier, after the Great Recession, we the Black homeownership rates plummeted. So it is true that a lot of the things that happened during COVID, almost everything that happened during COVID was bad. But one thing that happened is people didn't spend as much. And so you were able to save up, you know, to make a down payment. But the homeownership numbers still aren't great for Blacks, better than they were in 2019, but still not still where we need them to be. And also the white homeownership rates, even though the growth was smaller for whites between 2019 and 2021, they still uh, own homes at significantly higher rates than Blacks. And I guess the other thing you might want to probably, I probably need to mention is we have more room for black home ownership rates to grow because the numbers are so low. 
So it's great news, um, but we still have a ways to go. Thank you. And we're getting some more great questions in. Um, one comes from Mia, who asked a question that I, I wanted to ask as well, which is how can the Black homeowner get how can we close the black homeownership gap with legislation? Is this still considered a state issue? And to that end, I also wanted to ask, you know, do you see any promising strategies ahead for meaningfully reducing the homeownership gap? And do we think, as Amia said, that happens on the state level, the local level, the federal level? I'm more optimistic on the local and perhaps the state level. As I mentioned earlier, I'm just not optimistic that anything's gonna take place on the federal level. Uh, people have been trying for years and it doesn't appear to be working, or at least it hasn't worked in the past. But there are some things that, have, that are happening now. Um, so there are at least one major lender uh, has uh, uh, created a mortgage product where Blacks or, or anyone right will be able to buy the home without making a down payment. Now, the caveat that I'll raise is we tried this before the Great Recession, and it ended up having catastrophic results for Black homeownership rates. But if we are more conscious of what we're trying to do and making mortgage products genuinely affordable, I think this is a great start. Another thing uh, that some lenders are doing, which again, I think is terrific, is they are looking at how do we do credit scoring? I'm not suggesting that we need to drop any sort of standards in terms of approving credit. But I am arguing that we need to rethink what we what we are counting. So for example, if you don't give someone credit for paying their utilities on time, but they are in fact credit worthy, maybe we should look at other ways to measure whether someone is credit worthy when deciding A, whether to approve them for a mortgage loan and B, what interest rate to charge them. Because it doesn't do any good to tell someone, well, yeah, you can buy a home, no uh, down payment, but here is this exorbitantly high interest rate. And then if anything goes wrong in the future, you're gonna lose your home. The reason that I'd like to focus, at least with my, my, the, my last response to this question on the local level is we have to be realistic when we look at some cities about what is possible giving local zoning ordinances. By that, I mean, if it is a community where the zoning requires, and I will call it exclusionary zoning ordinances. So if the zoning requires that the only homes that can be built there must be you know, 20, 3,500, 4,000 square foot homes, that you have, a, you have to have a certain amount of setback from the street, which is a you know another way of saying you have to have a big old front yard, right? If we have these kind of zoning ordinances, it is going to be impossible for most lower and middle income people to ever be able to afford those homes. Second thing is, it is hard to expect developers to be able to build affordable housing if they're going to have to comply with zoning ordinances that tells, tells them you have to build a 4,000 square foot home and it has to be on half an acre. I mean, we're going to have to have an honest and realistic conversation about how can we get more affordable housing built in cities that seem to be determined to keep out certain types of homes from uh, certain neighborhoods. 
Thank you. And I mean, you mentioned exclusionary zoning um, with the opposite of that being inclusionary zoning. A lot of cities right now are working on proposals to sort of open up more opportunities for multifamily housing and large and smaller uh, housing structures known as the missing middle. Do you see any of those strategies as promising? Are there any specific cities you'd like to highlight as being successful in that realm? I see those strategies as phenomenal. And the other one that I would add, and they're called different things in different cities, the granny flats, right? So you own a home and maybe you want your aging parents to be able to live near you, but maybe none of you all want to live in the same house. And so you want to build a second, smaller, smaller home. They're called granny flats or also called um, ADUs of um, accessory accessory dwelling units. It's basically a second home on the same lot. Most zoning ordinances forbid that. Um, I will say one of the challenges we have in the city of Austin, there have been times in the past when the city has tried to do more with uh, creativity in zoning and uh, requirements that builders have a more inclusionary approach. Uh, unfortunately, our state legislators don't agree with that approach, and so we were overridden legislatively. But I think that is a terrific uh, approach. And that's why I say a lot of this is going to have to take place at the state and the local level. If our state and our local leaders are committed to having more affordable housing, if they are committed to making it possible for more people who want to buy homes, who view owning their homes as the American dreams. If we make that possible, it has to be at the state and the local level, but it can be done. Thank you. And we have an, another, another question from Hal as well, who asks, is the effective separation of the races a regulatory and legal issue or an unfortunate cultural issue? Um, Professor Dickerson, you've talked about white flight and white people effectively creating this you know, segregation culturally as well by no longer wanting to live in certain neighborhoods. Um, can you talk about that a little further about how our culture also contributes to segregation? Yeah, and, and so one of the things that again, I, comments that I'll often have when I talk about um, sort of neighborhoods and the racial home ownership gap is people will say, well, we don't have laws on the book anymore that require the neighborhoods to be segregated, but it's it's a choice and people can choose to live where they want to. And you're absolutely right. One thing I will note though, is neighborhoods in cities or parts of cities that maybe they don't get great neighborhood services and municipal services, uh, maybe the lights don't get fixed Maybe when the power goes out, their neighborhood is the last one to have power restored. It's amazing how that changes when the demographics of the neighborhood change. So I, I totally agree that a lot of this is voluntary and the state or the localities are not mandating segregation. But when neighborhoods are gentrified, services typically are better. Municipal services are better. Light bulbs are, or you know, street lights are changed. Um, uh, roads are paved, potholes are suddenly not as prevalent when you have higher income. And in, in most instances with gentrification, they are white. So when you have higher income whites who return to cities, suddenly the neighborhoods themselves become uh, more desirable. So you're absolutely right that much of it is based on choice. 
but municipalities, city leaders, they do play a role when they choose to invest in some neighborhoods, but not to invest in others. Thank you. I really appreciate that perspective and how that was a fantastic question. This You're is welcome. all the time that we this is all the time that we have for today, but thank you for being here, Professor Dickerson, and thanks to the audience for tuning in for this important conversation. Please join us again tomorrow. The conversation will be on crypto's crossroads year. Financial News and LMAX Group boss, David Mercer, will discuss the prospects for crypto at this pivotal point in its evolution. Will the crypto crash prove to be terminal or do digital assets have a future as a part of the broader financial ecosystem? Sounds interesting. Thank you for listening to this conversation. Be well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.